we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Adam Drovetta. I am Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined today by Kevin Flaherty at about 440 of 24-7 Sports. We're also going to have a uh, special guest on today, Jill Dorsey Hall, who does a lot of broadcasts for KU, volleyball, women's basketball for ESPN Plus or watch ESPN. And uh, we're going to talk the KU women's basketball team with Jill Dorsey Hall, a uh, 20-win season for them. We've also got some Bill Self also, audio. Uh, happy International Women's Day to the KU women's basketball team and to all the women in our life. Yeah. There are a lot of international players as well, if it is International yeah, Women's international Day. Women's is it Day. specifically International Women's Day for, like, women who are... No, interna- no, it's, it's, it's okay. just Women's Day around the globe ah, is the point gotcha. of the name, yes. It can be confusing. It's not just National Non-American Women's Day. Hey, you know who's non-American born but put up a heck of an effort last night? He's not Silvio, celebrating International Silvio Women's Silvio Day. Silvio de Sosa. Yeah. Silvio de Sosa from Angola, I think. Um, 17 and 14 for Silvio de Sosa last night. Um... Chattanooga is interesting. They they won, and, and the game itself was crazy. I'll get to this in a second. But Chattanooga last night playing in for the SoCon Championship, and you kind of forget, like, you know, it's one of those things where you saw it, you knew that it happened, that Silvio de Sosa transfers away, and then it registers back on your mind. You're watching the SoCon Championship last night, and this Chattanooga team, which is the favorite, and is good enough that, you know, a lot of, like, bracketologists are, are saying this could be a 12 or a 13 seed. So clearly, they're one of the teams that's in that prime territory for, oh, they could be an upset team. And Silvio de Sosa goes for 17 and 14 last night. He has this one, like, crossover juke move, drives to the lane. It's like, what is this guy? You're playing, I mean, you're going to, you, if you're a 4 or 5, you could be faced with a 12 or a 13 who has a dude who was athletic, five star. Yeah. athletically enough could have been a one-and-done. Yes. For... for not, I mean, obviously there was you know plenty of off the court and and some about ten feet off the court issues, um, but even from an on the court, he did he wasn't ever going to be a one and done once he got to Kansas. But there was a time where athletically, he at least was good enough to be a one and yeah, done. Yeah, he was good enough for you to beat two lottery pick big men in the Elite Eight in an NCAA tournament game, right? He had I think two points, ten rebounds against Marvin Bagley and and uh, Wendell Carter, so. Yes, that that's got to be scary for whatever four or five seed is there. But by the way, did you see actually the game, like how that went? No, I saw your text. Unbelievable! And then, um, I, Wait, I got, you have I, no idea how it happened? No, I watched highlights. Oh, okay, I know okay. how it happened. Yeah, I watched highlights. Okay, um, one yeah. dude was going to make a free throw, and Silvio bashed him in the back of the head with a stool. <laughs> no, that is incorrect. Oh, okay. um, no, I did, I did. It was a hell of a shot. Hell, guarded three to. Yeah, to send Furman home and send Chattanooga to the big dance. It was unbelievable game, and this is what I said yesterday. Like yesterday feels like to me the real start of March from the sports term. You get this game where it goes to overtime. You have back and forth teams hitting big threes to go up against each other. Uh, Furman hits like a late layup with four seconds. Silvio just missed the block on it against the backboard, and yeah, this guy just dribbles it up the floor. They had a timeout, and I was like, 
you know, I'm, I'm not always pro timeout, but in this situation, this guy was being like doubled, dragged around the whole way. It was like, you got to pass it. You got to pass it to get up the court quicker, or you got to call a timeout. And he, he just threw a double team, takes a contested three point shot that's maybe 35 feet away. Didn't even he just bank nets it. it. Didn't even bank it. Nets it. I, I've always, I felt like the conference tournaments are great because mm-hmm. they are. Um, an inefficient but very entertaining way, or or maybe ineffective. They're an, an ineffective yet very entertaining way to decide who should best represent a conference in the NCAA tournament, and that's perfect because the NCAA A is a very tournament is a very ineffective way, very ineffective but entertaining way to decide a national champion. Yes, yeah, like see- a, a one-off tournament is not the best way to actually decide a champion in the sense of. Who is the best? Yeah, 100%. And I, that's why I love the conference tournaments. I kind of wish that more conference tournament, like for the one-bid leagues, I get why for the bigger league. I kind of wish more of the one-bid leagues did what like the West Coast Conference does, where it's like the top two seeds have a bye to, like, to the, the semifinals. Yeah, the, the three and the four till the quarters. The West Coast Conference give it an has, advantage. Yeah, the West Coast Conference has 12 teams. Well, I'm so surprised. The, the way they could do it is just the top four teams mm-hmm. get a bye. Yeah. But what they do is the top the three and four get a bye to the quarters. Yeah, and then one and two, and then the one and two gets to buy all the way to the semis. Either that, or do what like the Ivy League does, where it's like we're only going to get the top four. The reason I like that, I like the conference tournaments, but I also, you know, if you want your best shot at upsets in March, get the best teams from those conferences in there. But nonetheless, unbelievable game. Find a way with an eight-team tournament to give your one seed a buy all the way to the final. final. Yeah, that'd be very fun. Um, is there a chance that Silvio De Sosa, if he was still at Kansas, would be starting right now? Um, and I mean, it would be in front of it. Have to be Dave. Dave McCormick, would be the favorite. Right? Yeah, it have he, to because he's not starting that position over Jalen Wilson. No, I think there is, and here's why. I'm I'm not saying he would be the favorite. Like I I think he Dave would, he would, would be have starting. a hell of an answer. Have a chance. He would have a hell of an answer to what do you do against a, a team like Oklahoma? Well, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Like you would have a more athletic five, but um, when I think about what happened earlier this season, back in I think that was January. David McCormick gets benched. Mitch Lightfoot takes over. Mitch Lightfoot doesn't really take over the spot. If if that happens and Silvio DeSosa is your backup five at that point, I think there's a better chance that Silvio DeSosa plays well enough that he secures the starting spot and you move forward from there. At the very least— I still think had, Dave's the better player, though. Yeah, but at the very least, you had moments athletically with Silvio that just made you go, oh, my God. I mean, he for sure would be the the first big off the bench, if not the starter. Yes, the alley-oop against West Virginia in the Big 12 final that year in 2018 when Kansas was kind of making a run at it at the end of the half. Um, He had had moments athletically where you were just like, holy Lord, I've never (laughs) seen anybody do that before. Like, truly, a, a freak. Like, a freak among freaks. Like, anybody who's playing college basketball at that level is athletically extraordinarily gifted. But he was a freak among freaks, and um, and obviously what happened happened. And look, I'm glad. I hope what you know, whatever was going, you know, whatever behavior, you know, he he's sorted all that out, and uh, I hope he's doing fine. And and um, I wish him well until he plays Kansas, and I hope he loses that game if he plays Kansas. But <laughs> other than that, I you know, I obviously what he did was was awful, and I, I'm. I fully understand why he ultimately is no longer part of this program, but I'm glad he's seemingly being a very strong contributor to a team that could make some noise in March. Okay, um, here's and, and yes, to answer your question, 
I think he's if he's not if he's not starting over David McCormick, he is the best first big off the bench in this conference. Mm-hmm. If that yeah. makes sense. Okay, here's here's a fun question. If you could re-add back one former KU one basketball goofball. player who transferred away from the program but is still actively playing college basketball. I, I think um he's obviously in discussion. Um I think he's well, averaging about 11 and 7 I, a game. I'll have to list him out. There's well, tr- I, I have a list right here. Tr- before you, you give it, there's Charlie Moore, there's Bryce Thompson, there's Silvio. I'm blanking. So there is uh, Tyon Grant Foster, who has played a total of one game for DePaul this year, but put up 9 and 3. He's not the answer. Didn't Charlie Moore go, didn't Charlie Moore go to Miami? Yes, he's at Miami now. He's this is like his Didn't he go to like third DePaul? or school. I thought yeah. he went to DePaul. He did, and then he went to Miami this year. Uh, he was all ACC defensive team this year. He averaged for a pretty well, good Miami for, team. Yes, in a in a turd conference. Yes, the um, ACC is a bad conference. But averaged twelve and a half points, four and a half assists, two and a half rebounds per game. We've been talking about the guard position. That's Obviously, true. it didn't go well the first stint, but you know, if he would have stayed, the and this would be his like third year in the program or fourth year, whatever it would be. I might, I'm, you know, the, the more I think about it, Tristan Inaruna. Inaruna is interesting. I, I didn't he didn't Inaruna and and um, Jalen Coleman Lance just pass each other. Yeah, they basically it, trade. Inaruna wound it up wound up at Ames, right? Yeah, they basically passed each other on I twenty nine or whatever highway you take to get to Ames. No, I. This sounds. I'm, Bryce Thompson, Bryce, guard? The thing about Bryce, yes, Bryce Thompson athletically is is very gifted. And he's had moments for Oklahoma State, but I. What? Maybe I'm just thinking too highly of him because I saw him can a couple big shots in Allen Fieldhouse. But what? What Latrell Jostle do? This I was year? just looking at him because I was I, wondering. I, I might just be too enamored because the I one think you were the game. Like I saw him can some really impressive shots when he played in Allen Fieldhouse. But I don't think his whole season has been much. So I don't think I'd go with him. I just happened to see him for Stephen F. Austin make some some a couple really good looking shots. Yeah. Um he's been good for Stephen F. Austin. Nine but and a half points per game. I'd have to go Silvio then. He thirty eight percent from the field though. Just I mean he's it, a good three point shooter. I, I just of the guards I got of, one more name for you though. Go ahead. Do you remember Isaac McBride? Never played a second, I believe, for KU. No, I I committed to KU, came to KU, then he like he left after I think the summer. I don't even remember how that all went. But he signed his letter of intent with KU, came to KU, and then he just like transferred away after just like the boot camp or something like that, or never playing early in the season. Uh went to Oral Roberts. He's averaging guard, six foot guard. He's a sophomore now for Oral Roberts. Twelve and a half points per game, shooting forty six percent from the field, forty four percent from three. That do anything for you? I mean, look, obviously the the place where Kansas, I believe, needs help the most mm-hmm. is um, a a lead guard who can consistently score. I think it's I, I either Charlie Moore much. or Silvio DeSosa. I, but I would lean Silvio DeSosa because I think what Charlie Moore would bring to the guard, what Silvio DeSosa would bring to the big man position would outweigh what Charlie Moore would bring to the guard position, if that makes sense. Yeah. I agree. That you saw moments like there were moments with Charlie Moore where you're just like, I don't know that the kid can is gonna be is gonna can, is, right. can make it. That's here. the thing with Silvio. There was nothing about his play that made you think the dude couldn't perform here. It was everything else. Well, that's the thing. If if you add back Charlie Moore, it's like, well, 
we just saw Joey Estefu come in. We just saw Remy Martin come in, who had arguably better seasons last year than Charlie Moore's having this year, although it's been a good year for him. And they haven't really been able to crack the rotation really consistently or with high minutes. So yeah, I think I think Silvio's the uh, the answer there. Just kind of an interesting. Like, thing. I just I think of all of every player you just listed, the only one I'm I granted I, I haven't watched a ton of any of those teams, but I I just. I really think Silvio's the only one that I hear of that group and go, yeah, that's a real Big 12 basketball player. Yeah. Although, look, Charlie Moore's doing fine, and, and I know the, the ACC's terrible by ACC standards, but it's still, it's still a Power 5 conference. So it's not, you know, it's not the summit, but it's not what the ACC's been. I just think the most true actual... He can be a very productive player in, a big, in the Big 12 conference is Silvio DeSosa. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Um, that open went places I didn't think it would well, go. Well, yeah. Uh, one guy who has been with the program for a while, Ochai Baji. Ochai has, um, and, and we'll hear from Ochai a little bit later in the show, Big 12 Player of the Year. He's kind of struggled over the last handful of games. I don't know how much of it is fatigue, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, playing all those games, just playing tough defensive teams who have players who maybe match up with him well to, to try to defend him. But you look at his recent run of games, they've been a, a bit of a slog. Over the last four games, Ochag Baji has shot 21 of 69, which is just 30% from the field over the last four. He has shot just 9 of 36 from three, which is just 25%. Those are not very efficient numbers. Those are a far cry from what he's averaging over the course of the season. Um, this isn't to say that, you know, I'm worried about Ochai, but it is to say maybe there's a little bit of that there headed into this part of the season. I guess how much of, of Ochai's struggles do you attribute to maybe the Texas matchup, uh, playing hard on senior day, tough defenses that you're playing, just kind of a bad run of games for a guy who's going to shoot a lot of shots? Like, What do you kind of attribute to that, or are you worried at all that this might be trending down headed into this point in the season? The first point I would like to make is that this hoodie I'm wearing is really soft. The second point I'd like to make is that I what bothers me about it is that it's more than the Texas game. And and I because if it were the Texas game, I would say first off, not every player or not every team in the in the country is going to have a defender that can guard Ochaibaji like like Ramey can. And even few fewer teams are going to have a player who can guard Ochaibaji the way Ramey can and then put up 17 on the other end. Like, there are a lot the, a lot of the teams that have a, a, a defender good enough to, to shut down Ochai the way Ramey has done twice, it's almost going to balance itself out. But Ramey became, came to a, a, a huge net positive for, for Texas because he put 17 up on the other end. I think a lot of defenders are going to be more, they, they use so much energy guarding Ochai that it's going to be like they'll grab six or eight on the other end and, you know, maybe, you know, make two shots and hit four free throws, something like that. Um, but, you know, it, it is um, something of a pattern. I, the the Baylor game, he took such a huge volume of shots. But I part of me wonders, is it also just other guys aren't making shots, so he's having to take a huge volume. Like I would, mm -hmm. I would prefer, um, like I, I, I could almost attribute it to that. That his, his, 
you know, his I think his numbers would be better if he were taking fewer shots. And I know we're talking percentages, not totals. But I think if her to- if her if his totals were less, his percentages would be better um, because he is. I don't know. I, I I just I think it's not a, a coincidence that his games where he struggles quite a bit usually not all the time, but usually turn out to be games where the rest of the dudes aren't hitting shots. Now, against Texas on Saturday, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. He struggled. He was guarded well, and he struggled. But that happened to be a game where David McCormick went off. Yeah. So that was an example of a game where you had Ochai who was shut down, but another guy stepped up offensively. Um, what bothers me is how many of those games he's scoring 18 points, but he's taking 14 shots. And I think he's taking such a high volume of shots because other dudes aren't hitting them. I think you can go into these and, and easily explain any, each one. Any one of them, but when they happen four in a row. Yeah, like uh, Baylor, he had 27 points, but took 22 shots to get there. Shot 36%. TCU, first game, he had 13 points, took 17 shots to get there. Second game, TCU, 22 points, but it took 19 shots to get there. Just two of nine from three, 42% from field. And then against Texas, eight points, but it took 11 shots, 05 from three to get there. And uh, he had two wide-open shots that he missed against Texas. Like, Ramey did an amazing job on him, but he had, I think, a bunny early that he missed against Texas, and he had late a wide-open shot from the elbow that he missed. I I don't know that I would worry at all about it because of the way that you can kind of explain each one. And I think think what you're saying about the others not scoring is, is accurate. I think the reason why, though, I, I think it's not as much about other players are struggling so they can maybe help off of their defender or they can maybe pay more attention to Ochai. I think it has more to do with other players are struggling, other players can't score, so Ochai feels the burden that, well, then I need to pick it up. I need to shoot more shots. I need to um, maybe take a few other shots that I normally wouldn't because at the end of the day, for the most part, you know, if others are struggling, even a tough shot for me might be a higher percentage than a a fine shot for other players. And I think you saw a little bit of the pressing at the end of the Baylor game. He actually started the Baylor game well. At the end of the game, like, I think you just kind of saw, like, you know, none of these other players are making shots. I'm going to have to try to take it on my back. And Baylor's too good of a defense to do that. I think there was also a lot of fatigue when you saw how many of his shots laid against Baylor were falling short. I think it's TCU. It was, again, kind of pressing, kind of this... You know, we, t- we talked about this with Jesse Newell last week. Like, we hadn't really seen that from Ochai this year of of taking some some shots that we weren't used to him seeing. Like, the shot selection wasn't as great there. And then against Texas, I think maybe it was a little bit of that because, I mean, overall, the team didn't shoot well. And I think it also was a little bit of you're maybe pressing too much. This game mattered to you so much on senior day, which um, I think now that we're out of that, I almost wonder if he is going to play more free-flowing and everything. And I actually, I saw this pointed out by uh, Mike Miller on on Twitter, Mike Miller underscore KU, so shout out to you, um, who pointed this out in regards to Ochai Agbaji. Because Ochai has struggled a little bit, as mentioned, over the last handful of games from three. Carson Edwards, if you remember from that 2019 NCAA tournament, the the Short little point guard who was just dynamic, uh, was a national player of the year candidate for Purdue. And if you remember, Carson Edwards went bananas from three that NCAA tournament, led them to the Elite Eight. They almost beat Virginia. They probably should have. Yeah, it took some funny business for Virginia to win that game. He went 28 of 51 
during their four NCAA tournament games from three. I mean, that is over 50% on 13 threes a game. That is insanity of what he did. Headed into the NCAA tournament, Carson Edwards, in his seven games prior to the tournament, was 14 of 66 from three. So it, it, it's not to say that— Seven of 33. Yeah, you, you don't necessarily just say, oh, I have to follow that path, and that means I'm guaranteed to shoot well in the postseason. But I think what it means is that overall, the bigger sample size, the bigger body of work for Carson Edwards and for Ochag Baji is that they are an elite three-point shooter on high volume, yeah. high efficiency. And, and aver- that- averages ultimately work themselves out. Maybe not over the course of one or two or three games, but over the course of a season they do. I think that he'll be just fine. I would not be surprised if he has a huge Big 12 tournament this week, if he does have a big NCAA tournament coming up. Let me ask you this real quick before we go to break. Mm-hmm. This is a, a an issue you and I have had um, off the air, and we've mentioned it on the air too. Do you think Ochai's offense will improve, or, or do you think the pressing might go away if Christian Brown starts actually taking some of those open looks he's passing up from three? Because that's been a that's been a bad that's been a problem for him most of conference play. I think, or do you just accept that that's never going to happen, so it doesn't matter? Yeah, I mean, there's probably something to that. Like that's just kind of part of his game. Um, so I don't know how much it's going to change. I, I think that it's less about like if one thing changes, one trade or something. I I think it's just like an overall thing. You know, if if everybody starts scoring a little bit better, or if maybe the the pressure is off now that. Regular season's over, and you did do what you came back to. Can't like he wanted to win the Big Twelve back for KU, and he did. And there was so much pressure over the last week, and there was uh, so much pressure with others not scoring. I think that's going to kind of go away. Um, I think it'll just kind of come naturally. Anyway, all right. This is uh, Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM one one seven and thirteen twenty KLW on Daily Poll coming up next. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk. Kevin Flaherty joins us in a little over an hour. Jill Dorsey Hall at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Our daily poll for today. If you could guarantee that one KU player would play their A-plus game, so their best game, and, you know, that's kind of subjective because if I really was saying, like, their A-plus-plus-plus game, does that That mean he makes every single shot and is perfect? TN goes 5 for 5 would be his... Yeah, a, a, a plus B. but you but, know what I mean. Like yeah. they're 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 top games. So, typical typical player. Yeah, exactly. Or, or not typical, but a um a, right. a, a normal rotation. Mm-hmm. You know, common start. Maybe not starter, but common player. Yeah. So like for Ochai, I would say his A plus game would be like the Texas Tech game, right? Was that thirty something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High efficiency. Yep. Like you're yep. still gonna miss shots and mess certain things up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So if you could guarantee that one KU player would play their A plus game every single game. For the rest of the season, who would you pick? I'm trying to figure out, or whenever something seems very obvious to me, there's always a part of me that tries to find an argument against why that should be the answer. So I'm working very hard mm-hmm. to find a reason to not pick Ochai Abaji. Um And I guess the only argument I could make is if Christian Brown or David McCormick have AAA-plus games the rest of the season— and I just bank on Ochai Baji 
kind of turning this, I don't even want to call it a slump, a minor funk around and becoming the player he was consistently, would KU be better off with that happening than with Ochai Baji hauling off for 34 every game? Well, I mean, the question is, too, as part of the calculus here, because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's really hard not to take the best player and say, do we get the best version of him every night? Because that makes you so hard, and it raises your margin for error for those other guys so much. But there's also the piece of it where it's, well, who do you trust to be at that and, A yeah, game if he's without going, the guarantee? Exactly. If he's going to be, you know, if if, if if you can, you know, like if if I could bank on Ochai hanging in that 18 to 24 point per game range and then somebody else, say David McCormick, you're giving me 20 and 10 all of a sudden every night, which I think is around his A game, um, I think I might lean that way. Right? Yeah. I mean Ochai's tempting. Christian to me is is not that tempting for some reason because I think well he I think it's you just important. get another version of Ochai. Yeah, exactly. You get and a I, second Ochai. I feel like the floor of Christian is raised enough that you know, it's not like Dave where if you don't get the A version, it could be the the D version. You know what I mean? Like Although still we are we have seen I mean, I still am yet to see was it TCU, the, the game they lost in Fort Worth, that we, it looked on the floor like he was terrible, and then you look at the box score, and he's like 9-11 and 11 or something? Yeah, that happened against a little bit against Baylor, too, for Dave. I To me, this is... I think I might I might have talked myself into Dave, but I really was leaning Ochai heavy at the start. Well, see, Jalen is interesting, too. The stat I brought up yesterday, where in wins per 40 minutes, he's averaging over 11 rebounds per game. In losses, it's like 6 so, like, having good Jalen, if you guaranteed me A-plus Jalen, that's a big difference. Yeah, Scott Chasen um, voiced his opinion that he thinks Jalen Wilson might be the closest thing to a matchup nightmare that Kansas has. I would say that's very true defensively. I don't know what he is. I don't know that he does enough offensively to make me say he's a matchup nightmare. Um, I think defensively he could be a, a huge problem for somebody. See, I think on defense there are times where he's a nightmare just, I, for KU. I just think athletically. I, I guess when he's when he's locked in, he lapses defensively. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying, but at his A game, if we're talking A game, um, I think he's athletic enough that when he's locked in defensively, he's so he's like, I just think athletically he's he's so gifted that when he decides to be locked in defensively, it's impressive. Would you give you any credence to one of the bench guards here with Joe Yesfu or Remy Martin? No, because I don't think they're used enough. Unless you want to tell me Remy Martin's going to come in and turn into the Big Twelve preseason player of the year. Well, yeah, that's. But like, I guess it's a chicken and egg because like, you're you're right. How much is he going to be used? But also, if he plays that well, he's probably yeah, going to yeah, use but more. Are you calling? Are you like? Are you giving me his A game at Arizona State or his A game at Kansas? A game at Kansas. Then so that's, probably what that's we saw against Michigan State. I was going to say there's 14 yeah. points in one half. So yeah, probably not. But what he would add to this team would be so beneficial. I, I, I do agree with you. I don't, I don't think I would take Remy. It would be very nice. I think the answer for me is Dave. Yeah, I probably have talked myself into Dave just because I think I can count on Ochai to, if, if you're not, if, if, like, if you're telling me his A game's 35, but, you, but I can still get 20-ish out of him to 22 um, with the occasional 28 on, on a night, and then you're telling me that, Every night I can bank on David McCormick coming home at 20 and 10 or better, then I'll take that. 
Yeah, the the big thing to me is the rebounds more than anything. Because I think we saw David McCormick in his A game against Texas on Saturday. That's what I'm saying. I, th- I think the A games for David McCormick are, yeah, the Texas game, the Oklahoma State game in Stillwater where he had like 17 and 50. Yeah, both games, games like that. Both games against Oklahoma State. And if, Yeah, and if you say you're getting that from Dave every single night. You're going to feel really good. I think you are, it's especially awesome. because that has been your most inconsistent player, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even, even the inconsistencies of some of the other guys, it hasn't been that often or that drastic. Like, even the off games for Jalen, it's 10 and 6, you know? The off games for Ochai are outside of yeah. the Texas game that we just saw are, okay, I still scored 20 points. It just wasn't as efficient, you know? At least with Jalen, with at least we're talking during conference play. Yeah, yeah. Because he had his he had a couple, like, 1 and 12 games. So you can vote. Um, I, w- I, w- I would lean Dave. I put up there Ochai, Jalen, Dave, and then other if you want to apply for, you know, like Remy Martin or But it feels like one of those things in, in three weeks, if we're talking about Ochai Abaji going through the Big 12 tournament and NCAA tournament, and he's averaging 35 a night, we're, we're, we're probably talking about a Kansas team in the Final Four. Yeah. But isn't there a world out there where Ochai does score 35 in a game and in, Dave has such a bad game that yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter? Yeah, it's possible. Like that was the Texas Tech game. It almost didn't yeah, matter. Yeah, you're right. You're right. They lost. I mean, it took it took a you know, crazy three to force a double overtime. So we'll keep this updated. It's at RCST1320 to vote early on. It's only been 22 votes in the few minutes we've been talking. But uh, 91% have gone with David McCormick. Really? Well, the other nine with Ochai. Nobody has gone with anybody else, but we'll keep that updated throughout the show. He's Adam Bravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Shark Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Four o'clock hour. This is Rock Shark Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Some big NFL news today. The biggest of them all. Mike Williams, three-year, $60 million contract with the Chargers. Woo! NFL Derek, 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 Derek. The stove is hot. Derek. What? That's not the biggest news in the NFL. Oh, did... It is the biggest news in the AFC West, though. Mm. Ooh. It I, is or is I not? I can't think of anything bigger that's happened in the AFC Mm-mm. West than that Mike Williams contract. No. Specifically not in the AFC West. No, yeah. The I, AFC West, by far, the biggest story is Mike Williams. The biggest story mm. in uh, in the NFL is uh, who uh, the the Titans not franchising that one guy. Oh yeah, I saw that too. That's a big deal. Harold Landry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chiefs? Question mark. Yeah, that's the biggest a defensive story in the lineman. NFL. Oh, you know what? We forgot another one. Mm. Uh, Green Bay is going to franchise tag uh, Devontae Adams. Really? Yeah, I think that's the only thing Green Bay did today. Well, they don't have anybody to throw the ball to him. Mm. No, don't have any. Wait, what's this? Aaron Rodgers. Never heard of him. Huh. He's that guy that's on that uh, Pat McAfee show a lot. Yeah, yeah, and he does like these commercials with that insurance company. He was married to that one woman and then not married Mm. to her and then engaged to the other woman Mm -hmm. and then not engaged to her either. But they got seen together at a coffee shop? Yeah, 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 him. That guy. Yeah, apparently he signed a uh, four-year, $200 million extension with the Packers. Mm. Although, according to his personal Twitter, he said, no, I did not. That is a paraphrased version. I believe he did say he is coming back to the Packers. Yes. So the Packers taking a shot. Do you think he wants more money? Aaron Rodgers. Is that why he's saying no? I did not agree to that. I I don't know. I don't I don't try like to four years, eight hundred million dollars. He just I'll be honest with you, he so clearly has 
I'm I'm interesting because I'm famous syndrome that I I don't care what he says much anymore. I think He's I, a good quarterback, the, though. Yeah, the guy can still sling pig, yep. and I I love watching him sling <laughs> the pig. But I, beyond that, I don't. I, it's like when a when a when an idiot. Be, but the, goes the the earth is flat, but because he's famous, mm. people are like oh, I said the earth is flat. <laughs> if anybody non-famous says that, they're a, yeah. just a immediately laughed off, screaming on the side yeah. of a on a, of a street somewhere. Go to your but when Facebook somebody famous page. says yeah. it, the people care. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so Aaron Rodgers four year deal, two hundred million. Again, he's kind of refuting it, but I don't know. I'm sure it's just. Coming um, off that uh, big old cleanse that he did. Do you think this is him trying to do the Tom Brady? It was like Tom Brady, the the announcement of him getting retired got scooped, and he wanted to do it himself. And he was uh, like, "No, that's he, not true." But well, then, like a day later, I, I thought it was him. Him, I thought he at least, at the very least, announced that he's coming back on the Pat McAfee show. No, he he on his Twitter too. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. said, "I'm but coming the, the back." Contract details. But I'm saying, what if this is him? Because he wanted to do it himself. What crossed my mind is, wasn't it? Last year during the draft that Mark Schlereth said, my sources are telling me the Packers, I mean the Broncos are about to acquire Aaron Rodgers in a trade, and then everyone was like, you're an idiot. No, they didn't. And he said, well, my source was Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Do you think Rodgers is just lying to everybody right now? Like that would the, be funny. Like he's just pulling, he's going full Andy Kaufman and just pulling a, a you don't know who Andy Kaufman is, do you? Uh, Yeah, the comedian. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah. Hey, I'm yeah. proud of you, bud. Yeah. Nice job. Owner of the Royals Stadium? Yes, no, um, yes. Um, but no, yeah. I just I wonder if he's going full Andy Kaufman, and he's not even he's not even going to play football next year. That would be pretty he's funny. Just lying to everybody. What if it's part of like the contract he's trying to sneak in there that if I retire, you still owe me this money, and just hoping they don't read it. <laughs> it's like ah, it's a fifty page contract. Maybe yeah, they they're not going to pay any attention. Um, but you that mean, are you talking like what the owners literally tried to do to the players mm-hmm. at like three in the morning in the negotiations? Mm-hmm. So that kind of took some relief, I think, off That's of baseball, Chiefs fans. To be clear. We're talking about baseball. Then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that took some relief off, off, I think, Chiefs fans because, you know, there were all those rumors of Aaron Rodgers to the Broncos, and that could be a thing. And it's like, man, you already got to deal with Justin Herbert, who's a really good young quarterback. Like, we got to deal with – and the Raiders, I mean, that was a playoff team. The Raiders almost Derek beat Carr's, the Bengals. Yeah, Derek Carr's a fine quarterback. Yeah, they almost beat the Bengals in the first round of the playoff, the team that won the AFC. Luckily, it's just old Drew Locke there in Denver. No, it is not because despite the relief that, hey, Aaron Rodgers not going to the Broncos anymore. Okay, sigh of relief. Um, turns out that the Broncos have traded for Russell Wilson. They gave up a haul, dude. They did, but I we, we talked. I think it's worth it. I, I think it's worth. And look, I I think there there's been some rumble. And look, I still he's think, a nine time Pro Bowl. I still think the Chiefs right now. I still believe the Chiefs have the best quarterback, frankly, in the NFL. Um, and so that includes obviously the AFC West. Um, I, but I I thought last year that the Broncos had the best non quarterback roster in the NFL or in in the AFC West. It just so happens to be that the quarterback is such a damn important position that they weren't able to overcome what they lacked there. Um, but I, I think this really upgrades them, and, and I think Russell Wilson is a is a really good quarterback. I think he probably gets put a little, by some, I think he gets put a little higher than maybe is warranted, but he's still a really, really, really good quarterback joining a team with an already salty roster that that's going to be a playoff team next year um and i think look and i i some people might want to use this as news that he's on the downslope downslope 
he he had probably his worst year of his career last year. To me, that doesn't say this dude's on the downslope. To me, the dude that says that this dude's about to be crazy focused all offseason and he's ready for one of the best years of his life. Yeah. And I think that was the perfect time for the Broncos to get him. Yeah, I think on any given year, he's somewhere between like the fifth and eighth best quarterback. Yeah, and NFL. I think he's going to be closer. I think because of the year he had last year, I think he's going to go, like, he's going to be crazy hyper focused. And I think he's suiting up to be closer to the fifth mm-hmm. this year. And that's the thing, though. If, if you're talking about, like you said, I mean, uh, Javante Williams, I think, is the best running back in the AFC West. I mean, Austin Eckler is uh, really good for the Chargers. Josh Jacobs, pretty good for the Raiders. Um, I I think he was at one point, I don't know if he finished the season, at one point he was leading the NFL in, in broken tackles by a running back, despite the fact he wasn't even the full-time running back there. He's really good. They have a, a lot of weapons. They've been investing in receivers. Tim Patrick, uh, Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy. It's not like the greatest receiving core in the NFL, but it's certainly one of the top ten. It's, it's a good receiving core. Now, they did give up Noah Fant in this trade, so that loses one piece. Um, but the offensive line is solid. It's fine. And the defense is probably the best defense in the AFC West. So, yeah, if you're if you're talking about, even if Russell Wilson isn't as good as Patrick Mahomes or even as good as Justin Herbert, I think he's better than Derek Carr, he's at least more neutralizing that position. And, and Drew Locke, who's going to actually be going to Seattle in the trade, was, was very, very bad. I mean, I, I don't know if he's even a top thirty quarterback in the NFL. Very, very bad. Now the, the Broncos trade... the Broncos go seven and ten this past year or eight and nine? Uh I don't remember. Keep talking a little um, So they, they gave up Drew Locke, they gave up Noah Fant, they gave up Shelby Harris, who's a solid starting D lineman for them. They gave up two first round picks, uh a t- couple second round picks and a fifth round pick for Russell Wilson and a fourth. Broncos finished seven and ten with a horrid quarterback. They upgraded their quarterback position immensely. Again, I, I I don't think he's I wouldn't even put him above Justin Herbert. I agree he's better than Derek Carr, but the point is, yes, I, I think most people would agree he's not as good as Patrick Mahomes. But I think when you figure in that that roster went seven and ten with really awful, like not just average, awful quarterback play, um, the it, it's. It's like when the the 2000 um I can't even think of a decent comparison. Like I mean it was I don't know the the 2011 Chiefs, remember they had horrid, you know, the Matt Castle was bad mm-hmm. and then he got injured so it was like Palco and Orton and that team still scrounged out a 7 and 9 record and you're like, "Man, what would that team's have been record has been if they had, you know, a, a serviceable quarterback?" Um, I think the Broncos are an even better version of that. They went seven and ten with putrid quarterback play, and they just added a, 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 a con- consensus or cons- consistent Pro Bowl quarterback. Yeah, uh, so they're going to be really good. It's it's going to be a mess in the AFC West. The division is going to be insane. I'm expecting three teams to, you know, two of them to get wild cards, one to win the division. I I think it's going to make it really tough team, for. I mean, every team could have a minimum of three. You gotta have every team in this division have at least three primetime games. And most and, and and I think the Chiefs will have more like five. That's interesting. Maybe it'll become the new NFC East, where it's like we always get these like Cowboys, Washington football team, or yeah. Cowboys Giants games Maybe because of the quarterbacks, because it's a super competitive division, um, because that other division, the NFC East, kind of sucks. Like maybe that'll start to trend that way. But the max um, the max a team can be scheduled on um primetime is six, and they can add a seventh if you're flexed to it. 
So I, I think this is. I think you're looking at a division where every team's going to play three to four primetime games at least. Yeah, season. there's going to be a lot. Quarterback. I, I think it's going to really hurt the ability whoever wins the division to get a one seed. Now, the beauty of having a Patrick Mahomes that level quarterback is that. Just get into the dance. Even if you are a wild card, it's been a little spoiled from that, and and you obviously would rather host games and be hosting the AFC Championship. But if you even get in as the five or the six seed with Patrick Mahomes, you're always going to have a chance. That is the beauty of that. Yeah, I just think it's going to be a lot harder to get the one seed now because, first of all, now that there is a lot more competition for that one seed in terms of that's the only buy, but like you look at the Rams. The Rams got the four seed. They were the lowest ranked division winner. They ended up winning the Super Bowl because you look at the NFC West, you're playing the Cardinals, you're playing the 49ers. Even the Seahawks, who were the worst team in the division, had Russell Wilson, although not for the full season. Um, it's just going to be a lot tougher, I think, to rack up a, a really elite record. Yeah, and it's somewhat of a chicken and egg thing. Like, did the did the Rams get, you know, wind up winning the Super Bowl because they got toughened by such a competitive division or, I don't even mean that or, way no I no just, no yeah let yeah. me put it this way I think I think probably more possible is the fact that they came through that division is evidence that they are a great team does that make sense mm -hmm. that it's not that going through the battering ram of that division is what made them you know turn them into a team that could make it through the playoffs and win the Super Bowl it's that the fact that they came out as the winners of that division you had to be a Super Bowl level team to to win that division. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that I makes think sense. the AFC West is going to be something similar. Mm -hmm. Like you, if you're even if you come out of the AFC West as the winner, and you're only going to be the four seed or the three seed, you're still because you came out of that division, you're going to be considered a, a a world championship contender because you just won the most competitive division in the in the in the sport. Yeah. Um, and so now, what do the Chiefs do to counter that? Well, defensive line, pass rush, going to get even more important with all these good quarterbacks in there. I say put everything on the offense and score 77 points a game. Mm. I, I am a proponent of that, you know. Go, you know, get, uh, well, Devontae Adams just got franchised, but, like, get 70 whoever the top receiver. 70% of your cap on the offensive side of the ball mm -hmm. and just go nuts, man. Yeah, go nuts. Play some money ball on defense. Um. Orlando Brown is franchise. We didn't get to talk about this yesterday. This happened on uh, either Monday morning or Sunday. I can't remember. Uh, but Orlando Brown franchise, it is the transition tag, which to explain what that is, there are different forms of the, the franchise tag. Now, the transition tag basically is Orlando Brown is allowed to negotiate with other teams. And then um, if the other team comes to a contract agreement with Orlando Brown, the Chiefs have the opportunity to match the contract. So let's say he talks with some other teams, the Detroit Lions or something, are like, hey, we'll give you five years, $100 million to be our, our starting left tackle. And he says, okay, great, deal. The Chiefs now have the opportunity to match the contract. And if the Chiefs do match the contract, he gets that contract with the Chiefs. If the Chiefs do not match the contract, not only would the Lions in this circumstance or whatever team get Orlando Brown, they would have to give the Chiefs two first-round picks. I would happily take, uh, in, really, in any scenario, I would be happy. I would be happy with Orlando Brown under the franchise tag for another year. I would be happy um, with Orlando Brown under an 18 to $20 million left tackle uh, long-term deal um, because I think he's only going to get better as a as a – uh, pass blocker. Mm -hmm. I think he's an elite run run blocker, and I think he's going to get better as a pass blocker. So I'd be happy with him on a long term deal around the number that he's seemingly going to command. And I would be really happy to get two first round picks for him. So I think no matter what, the Chiefs come out winners here.
Yeah, I think so too. Um, I do think they would have to use, and I, right now I think the the only chance of a really serviceable left tackle to fall to them at thirty is that kid, ironically also from Central Michigan, which is where Eric <laughs> Fisher went to school. But he, he's I can't remember his name, but he I think he was a tight end. But he turned out uh, he moved to left tackle and was actually rated pretty high on Pro Football Focus. Granted, in a in a lesser conference. Um, yeah, Bernard Raymond. I want to say sounds right. But anyway, Ryman. Um, I, he may fall to the Chiefs at thirty. Um, but I, I think I think what is most likely going on here is that they're they're putting this in as a placeholder because right now what they're doing is negotiating with Tyreek Hill. I think before training camp, Orlando Brown, or maybe maybe he sits out. Maybe I think I'll say by the end of training camp, I think Orlando Brown has signed a long term deal with the Chiefs. Yeah, and I don't think anybody will sign him that'll make the Chiefs match it because again, you're not going to like it'd be one thing if you were like, hey, we'll we'll overpay him so that the Chiefs try not to match it. But then you're saying you're overpaying him and giving and up giving two up two first, first round picks, picks. and that yeah. that's just you know not worth it. It would have to be like a star quarterback for that to happen, which just you wouldn't let him hit the open market at that point. I think you're right. It'll probably be the Chris Jones situation. They franchised him a couple months later. He had the long term deal. More Chris Jones than Brandon Albert. Like the when when they and Brandon Albert played obviously the same position. When they franchised Brandon Albert, it was obvious what they were doing was giving him one last year with the Chiefs as the left tackle. Eric Fisher spends a year as the apprentice at right tackle. And then Eric Fisher eventually moves over to the left mm-hmm. tackle position. It was obvious what they were doing there. I think it's given what they gave up for Orlando Brown, given how much he improved over the course of the season. I think it's pretty clear the end the end game. I think for both parties here, um, is a long term deal with the Chiefs. And yes. I'm fine with that. And it's pretty clear Tyron Matthew probably not going to be in the cards for the Chiefs next year. Who knows? Maybe he goes in the open market, doesn't see the numbers he likes, and comes back to the Chiefs. But as of right now, that. Not uh, looking great, but NFL free agency starts on Monday, so this is coming up pretty quick. The uh, franchise deadline is tomorrow, so we're going to see more about who are going to be free agents in this class for the Chiefs. All right, coming up next, we'll play the rest of what Bill Self had to say. Then coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll be joined by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back in. You're listening to RCST on KLWN. Joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Talk some college hoops with Kevin. Uh, So the Big 12 Awards, the coaches one came out. Uh, whatever, Sunday night, I think. AP1s came out today. If you could make any changes, and I guess this kind of depends on, on which one you're looking at, although I think the first teams were the same, um, would you make any changes? It doesn't necessarily have to be one of the teams. It could be to one of the awards or something. And what changes would you make? You know, one of the things that, that, I, thought, uh, that I thought was a little bit different, I guess, was... Uh, was Texas Tech not getting any players on on the all defensive team um, from the coach's standpoint? And I haven't seen the all defensive team from the media standpoint. But when you look at at the bottom part of that um, uh, of that list, I, I think there are a few guys that there are the three guys who kind of tied for Big Twelve Defensive Player of the Year. 
Uh, I thought Kevin McCuller was probably in that discussion or, or should have been in that discussion. And so for him to not be, uh, I think, one of those five and, and the other two were, were Kansas's Dewan Harris and, and Kansas State's Marquise Noel. And both of those guys are guys that I probably would have put McCuller ahead of on that list. So that, that was the biggest snub that jumped out at me. One of the things that, that I would change, I, I feel like in general, Derek, and, and I feel like you agree with me on this, is I would add more weight to what actually happens in conference play. I'm not saying it needs to be strictly what happens in conference play, but when you're picking the best players in a conference, it, it seems like that makes the most sense to reward guys who do well when everybody has the same schedules, when they're playing the same teams and all of those things, and and with the, the possibility of a conference title on the line. And so looking at stuff like that, like, for instance, I think James Akinjo's efficiency numbers maybe get hit a little bit too hard within conference play because, you know, some of that was him playing through an injury where he had to play. Baylor didn't really have anybody else. Uh, I think some of that, too, was his supporting cast being injured. And so a lot of that uh, a lot of that didn't help. But a guy that I didn't think was supporting cast for Baylor and, and I thought was significantly better than Akinjo in conference play and, and seemed to hit every big shot for that Baylor team, I would have gone with Adam Flagler over James Akinjo in conference play. I think Flagler averaged 16 a game right about in conference play and hit some just absolutely mammoth shots. I don't think Baylor wins the conference title if not for those shots. And so that's somebody, you know, weighing conference play, I feel like the way that, that I would, Flagler probably would have made that first team and Akinjo probably would have been second team for me. Yeah, I agree with you. The other one that I would have, have changed up, and I, I agree with you too on the defensive side of things like Texas Tech is literally the number one defense in the country. Kevin McCuller was a is the only Big 12 top 10 candidate for the Naismith Defensive Player of the Year. Um, but the coach of the year and in the AP gave it to Mark Adams which I thought was the correct pick. Scott Drew wins it in the coaches and I will say like I, I said this yesterday too I do think sometimes we get too wrapped up in the idea of who did we predict to be bad and who finished above our expectations the most? Because there's a little of that where it's, well, maybe we're just bad at predicting things. But still, with, with Scott Drew, I thought that it should have been Mark Adams' award. I have a conspiracy that I have yet to unveil, though. What if the reason Scott Drew won Big 12 Coach of the Year, I don't know if it's a voting system where you just vote for one guy or if it's like a list, but what if it, it was Chris Beard sabotaging the Mark Adams Coach of the Year vote? <laughs> That that would certainly make an amazing story <laughs> if that if that came out and it's kind of funny it reminds me of the one year when what Tim Tebow was not unanimous preseason player of the year or whatever <laughs> in the SEC and it turns out one of the coaches you know threw his SID under the bus or or whatever and was like well gosh I didn't vote for that my SID must have done it and then the question becomes well you're supposed to vote on this so. You know why? Why didn't you? But I, I do think that's that's kind of a kind of a fun conspiracy. I, I do think they, you know, based on the ballots that I've seen, they do pick one candidate, and I think that's what made it really tough this year. 
was I felt like there were three really deserving candidates. And, and I agree with you 100% on the – typically the coach goes – or the award goes to the coach who exceeded expectations the best. But who's to say that we're the best at, you know, delivering those expectations in the first place? And so you look at, you know, 2019-2020, I felt like – was an absolute master class by Bill Self. And, you know, they had that, uh, had a great season. They never lost uh, when they had their full complement of players and they were fully healthy. You know, Self made some changes to the way that team played in order to get the most out of Yudoka Azubuki and did that, you know, mid-season in the Big 12. And, and that was kind of the difference between that first Baylor matchup and the second Baylor matchup. And Scott Drew won Coach of the Year, <laughs> and it, you know, it, and it wasn't it wasn't that Self wasn't the best coach that year. It was nobody thought Baylor would have that kind of season where they finished, you know, fifteen and three in the Big Twelve and, and finished second. I don't think Baylor had ever even finished second in the Big Twelve before. And so when you when you looked at all that, the winner of the award was Drew. But the actual, you know, coach of the year who had the best year from a coaching standpoint was pretty much inarguably self. And so he didn't get it. This year, I think Scott Drew basically did as expected, but got a lot of credit for, for coaching an injured roster. And I think, you know, he deserved a lot of that credit. I think one of the weird things about Adams is I don't feel like people ever talked about how banged up Texas Tech was. And for Scott Drew, it was kind of line one A, right? Like you're, if you're talking about Scott Drew's case, why he deserves it, the injuries are are in the lead. Whereas with Adams, it, it wasn't really something that was ever really mentioned. And yet, you look at the fact that you know when they won at Baylor, I think were they without McCuller and Shannon for that game? I know they were without a couple guys for that. Yeah, they and were without McCuller so and Shannon for the the uh, KU game. I know for sure. Yeah, and so you you look at all of that, and, and you know Mark Adams has a has a great case, but for whatever reason, nobody really brought up those injuries at all. And then T.J. Osselberger, I mean, going from two wins to to twenty wins, I think the fact that Iowa State wasn't nearly as good in conference play really kind of chopped down his candidacy there. But I think the the flip side of that is is. Otzelberger would maybe have a little bit better standing from National Coach of the Year standpoint with with all that stuff. But I felt like those three, if it would have gone to to any of those three, even if you disagreed with the pick, it wasn't going to be the sort of thing where you were going to sit there and, and really raise a stink about it. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of Twenty Four Seven Sports. If if I asked you to, and, and maybe this would just go back to the Adam Flagler answer, but. Um, among a player that was not a, a first-teamer that would, if, if we were just, let's say, the, the player pool of all the players in the Big 12 and they were having a draft today with all those players, who would be a player who was not a first-teamer that would be a top-five pick because maybe they just you know didn't have the overall body of work or uh, maybe there's a, in a position of, of more importance, like who, who would be a player or two that you think could crack into that top-five of the draft that weren't necessarily all Big 12 first team? You know, it kind of feels like Flagler is cheating in that circumstance. 
would he would probably be the answer though. Uh, I think you know if you're looking throughout the conference, there are maybe some more talented guys that that maybe a coach would say, well, if if I had that guy, you know, then then this would be a, a little bit different. But I, I think some of the guys that just missed. I mean, Christian Brown is a terrific player for Kansas. Jalen Wilson, a terrific player for Kansas. But I don't know that other teams maybe would see them as as top five guys in the conference from from a draftable standpoint. And when you when you look at it like that and say basically, hey, I'm I'm building a Big Twelve team. Who do I want to build around? And you're not you know, taking those those first few guys, it kind of felt like they, they honored some of the guys that maybe you would have taken, right? Like maybe you would have been sneaky and, and taken, you know, somebody like Nigel Pack, but then he made first team. So so that that knocks him off the list. Maybe Timmy Allen, you know, as a guy who was so successful, you know, at Utah, who played a different role at Texas this year, I, I think he's really versatile. So maybe Timmy Allen would have been one of those guys. I think it's a, I think it's a super interesting question. Or if you know there was somebody sitting there who, who maybe felt like, hey, they didn't have the best season, but if you gave me, you know, if you gave me this guy or, or that guy, um, whether it's Marcus Carr or or you know somebody like Remy Martin, maybe those guys would go higher in a draft depending on on who was taking them if they felt like they were going to get more out of those guys than, than what they actually did this year. Last night, the SoCon Championship, crazy game. Chattanooga wins. They could be a trendy upset pick in the bracket come Sunday. And of note, Silvio DeSosa goes for 17-14, and 14, and that game looked really good. We, we had a conversation in the open. If you could add one former KU player who is still currently playing in college basketball, so basically a player transferred away and is still playing, to this year's KU team, who would it be? And just to go through some names that, that we went through, obviously Silvio, Charlie Moore, um, Isaac McBride had a pretty efficient scoring season at Oral Roberts. There's Tristan Anaruna. I'm, I'm missing a couple names, but uh, who would you go with of, of that one player? I think it would be Silvio. And I, I think the, the reason why is because you look at, at the way Kansas is is sort of formulated right now. And Kansas's best lineup is David McCormick playing 30 minutes a game, right? I mean, I don't think that that's really in dispute. Yes, you can say, hey, I'd like to see more minutes for, for Zach Clements or, or more, more minutes for, for KJ Adams. But I, I feel like when you go against other top tier big men, you know, McCormick is either the answer that night or he isn't, but he's the answer more often than the other guys. And the fact is, is David McCormick is that all while battling a foot injury and what, a knee injury now? And so I think if you had Silvio DeSosa and you'd had him all year long, I'm not entirely sure that David McCormick starts this year. And it's not because McCormick's not good enough or not better than DeSosa, but just by virtue of the fact that Kansas wouldn't necessarily need him to start and play 25 or 30 minutes a game. You would have another, you know, big body guy who can match up physically with other frontline guys. And so I think if Kansas had Silvio DeSosa, he's the one guy that you can point to out of that group and sort of say, this guy 
wouldn't just necessarily be a rotational piece, but also, you know, might might be a starter because of the way that he would fit in at that position. You know, if you're looking beyond that, you know, Bryce Thompson is going to be an interesting mm-hmm. guy to to circle just because I, I think he probably would have played a decent sized role on KU's team this year had he come back. It, but even so, I, I don't know that there's a great pathway for Thompson to be a starter on this year's team. Whereas I think that DeSosa, because of the injuries to David McCormick, and certainly because he would be Kansas's no doubt at least number two big man, you know, really has a, a pathway to play a, a lot and play a major role. Yeah, and especially when Dave lost the the starting spot in the lineup for that brief moment in time to Mitch Lightfoot, like I think there's a better chance that Silvio kind of takes that by the reins than than Mitch was able to. I, it's a very interesting hypothetical, and boy, would that be interesting if you know uh, the difference between if if we could peer into the uh, the two multiverses of of the options of if KU like were to win a national championship if they still had Silvio De Sosa, that would be absolutely wild. Um, so the Big Twelve tournament starts up for Kansas on Thursday, overall on Wednesday. How do you kind of en- envision this playing out? What matchups are most interesting to you? Uh, how do you envision this kind of working out for Kansas? You know, I, I think that it's a, it's a pretty good tournament in terms of Kansas doesn't necessarily, I don't want to say they don't have to do a whole lot, but it, getting that one seed and getting Texas or TCU potentially in the semifinals if you if you get to that point, as certainly Kansas would be favored to do, is a lot better than getting Baylor or Texas Tech. And so because of that, getting that one seed really gives Kansas a great shot to, to get to the final. And I think when you look at the other side, I think we've talked about this before, but Tech, I, I think, you know, obviously they've matched up well with Baylor. They've swept Baylor this year. But Tech worries me in a tournament standpoint, in a tournament setting, I guess you would say, like the Big 12 tournament, because I feel like Tech expends more effort on a game-to-game basis. You know, when you look at uh, stats for soccer, right, they have like how many how many miles this guy ran a game and everything, and certain guys just, you know, basically go out and run a half marathon a game or or whatever it is. But I feel like Tech uses its legs more. There's such a high effort level and such a physicality with that team on on an every-night basis. And while that's something that Mark Adams and those guys should certainly be praised for, that makes Tech the type of team that, you know, when they get to Baylor playing their second game in two nights, if they get to that title game playing their third game in three nights, is Texas Tech going to have the legs to pull off something like this because of the effort that they expend? And so I think it could be really interesting if if it does wind up being Kansas and Texas Tech maybe from that other side is, you know, does Texas Tech have, have gas left in the tank based on the way that that they play and what their playing style is. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 24-7 Sports. Kevin, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, Kevin, one last thing. If you send a raisin back in time, does it become a grape again? I think it would. Mm. You know, I, I think when you when you send a person back in time, you know, they tend to see themselves as they used to be. And, <laughs> you know, if you, if you go back, you know, when you're 80 to – 
to when you're 30, you know, I like to think you'd have, you'd be spry and have better joints. And, and I tend to think that, uh, that the raisin is going to have a few, uh, a few fewer wrinkles, I guess. Well, uh, we'll see if, if, uh, I don't even know what to say to that. Honestly, I was trying to segue <laughs> that, but I have nothing to go off of that. I really don't. Uh, he's Kevin Flaherty. Check out all his work. 24 seven sports. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always. All right, thanks a lot, guys. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports. He's Adam Dravetta. I am a stumped Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Two hours down, one to go. Jill Dorsey Hall talks KU women's basketball in the Big 12 Women's Basketball Tournament next. Joined now by a special guest, Jill Dorsey Hall who's gotten to broadcast a lot of the KU women's basketball games this season over on Watch ESPN. Jill, thank you for uh, hopping on the show. KU won 20 regular season games this year, first time in a few decades for that, and uh, kind of chronicling what has happened this season for them and, and getting to watch a lot of the action. What has been the most impressive thing about this season for the Jayhawks for you? Well, I think hitting that milestone, you mentioned 20 wins is phenomenal. And just the fact that they were able to hit the ground running in conference play and pick up those key critical road wins, I think set them on the right trajectory. If they didn't go on the road and get that one against TCU and then beating that ranked opponent, that truly instilled, hey, we are here, we've arrived, we can compete, we can beat the best of them in the conference. And I think that really helped them propel to, you know, finishing top half of the Big 12 and getting that 20 win and also too, not to mention they just went on the road in Norman and held Oklahoma pretty low scoring total. And they're a very good offensive team. So they capped it off too, by showing, Hey, we're not going to go on a losing seat going into the big 12 conference. We're going to go win on the road and picked up some momentum once again. You know, we've seen some other years uh, recently where KU maybe has put together a good non-conference in terms of the record, against maybe a, a weaker schedule, but then it hasn't kind of formulated mm-hmm. into Big 12 play with wins. Uh, was there a moment this season when you felt like, no, things are different for this team? Indeed. I think with the arrival of Tayana Jackson, that alone, we got to see her work in the non-con and say we, they have a rim protector. In the last couple of years, they had had the guard play, phenomenal guard play. Zakiya Franklin, Holly Kurzgeter now are veterans on the team and support staff. Chandler Prater is healthy. And when they can go to the bench with depth, but they have the presence of Jackson, who just got awarded, and rightfully so, an all-Big 12 defensive team, you knew that they had the chance and they have that depth that they just had not had in years past. Last year, Elon had Katsuyanti had to play that five, and that was not a comfortable position for her. So when we saw Jackson, I think we all kind of looked at each other on the broadcast crew, whether it be television or radio, those cover the teams over the scent with Coach Brandon, and even prior to that, said, okay, this team can can do some special things. And they have the buy-in. The chemistry, you could just see Coach Brandon, it's taken a couple of years to get that, that team chemistry because he has players that have bought into his system that believe, that are doing the little things. Oftentimes he talks about what does it look like in the huddle and eye contact, and they're all bought in, and the support is there, and you definitely see that this is the closest team that they've had over the number of years. There's no outliers that have that, that ego. They want to go get their points, and they try to build the program for a couple years on getting five-star recruits, transfers into the program, and unfortunately that just didn't work. 
So it took a couple years to say, okay, I'm going to build all this program with all of my players that believe into the system, that want to be here for the right reasons, and they've done that. And you're starting to see it all come together this this year. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Tiana Jackson in there too. Uh, you know, Holly Kierskeeter, first team All Big Twelve player. I think it's fair to sh- say she's the best player on the team. But if I asked you who the most important player on the team is, would that be mm-hmm. Tiana Jackson? I think so. Close second, though, I'd have to say Chandler Prater. The energy and her will and wants. Oftentimes, she comes off the bench. But it is she's a complete motor, and she is a tough player. And to win in the Big 12, you have to have that toughness. You have to have that grittiness. And Chandler Prater loves being a Jayhawk. I mean, she is from North Kansas City. She loves to be within the program. She wants to bring this program back to, you know, a prominent figure in women's basketball. And, and she loves playing hard and there's not many players that do and she makes that extra play that might not see you might not see in the statistical categories but those are the exact type of players that coach brandon wants in his program so i think that you look at some of their key victories where she came in and produced and had oftentimes we have a guest when they are at home and they come and speak to us after and there was numerous times where it was Chandler Prater and not all the time because she was a leading point goer but she was that x factor she was that player on the floor that they needed or was that surge of energy when she got on the floor she was that plus you know 10 or 12 when she was on the floor with her minutes that she played we're talking with Jill Dorsey Hall here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk um KU plays Oklahoma in the quarterfinals of the Big 12 tournament on Friday and as you mentioned they just went down to Norman and and won against Oklahoma Uh, what's going to be the biggest challenge for them in having to play them back-to-back games just the offensive numbers that Oklahoma can produce they are so hard to contain because they're able to stretch defenses it presents hard matchups because if they put a lineup on the floor that can all stretch the defense and bring them out, although give a lot of credit to Jackson because she was huge with her defensive presence coming out, blocking numerous shots within that victory. But it's going to be tough to to defeat an offensive weapon team like Oklahoma twice in a row. They were able to contain them. I think the point total for them was 67, and they went on the road this last weekend. That's hard to do back-to-back times. Yeah, uh, how do you overall, as you look at the Big 12 tournament and you look at the the bracket of how that thing shakes out, like how do you kind of envision uh, things going? I think you got to look at how well Baylor's been playing. They started the Big 12 0-2, and they went on a complete tear. They, they played a very high level, and that was a team actually Kansas had down four with the 25 seconds to go and lost that at home. They had Baylor beat, right, in that mm-hmm. third game for Baylor in, in conference play, and they were reeling a bit, unable to finish that one out. But Baylor has taken their play to another level. They have a first-year coach, Kim Mulkey, left and went to LSU, and they have a new coach. She's done great things. I think it took a little while, but I do think that they have to be the team to beat just because they went on the road recently and beat Iowa State in conference play, or one would think maybe they were going to share the Big 12 titles. So I do think like that, that Baylor is the favorite. However, things have been so tightly contested within the Big 12 Conference. I think that this is the strongest that the conference has been in a number of years from top to bottom. There is not a weak team. So I expect some upsets, if you will, if you just look at sheer, you know, a 6-3 matchup or something of that matter. Um, and anything is possible because I think that there's uh, capable teams. Texas Tech almost beat Baylor as well this year. I know that 
There's teams that went into Texas and won on the, you know, on the road, Kansas being one of them as well. TCU beat Texas earlier. So, and, and not just to talk about Texas, I think that many teams are capable. And so it's going to be a very fun tournament. You know, Kansas obviously has a tough opponent, but they don't have to play in that first game, which is, hasn't been the case over the last couple of years. So it's nice to be able to be a spectator for those first rounds and, and have that, that game off, and they're already in the quarterfinals. Yeah, and I think that's a good point with with Baylor playing them close and KU maybe struggling a little more with Iowa State that maybe they are on kind of the right side of the bracket there that if they do beat Oklahoma that Mm -hmm. if you're getting one of those top two teams maybe for whatever reason you just tend to match up better uh, with Baylor. Now as far as as KU's overall season, um, do you think they've done enough to be in the NCAA tournament regardless of what happens in Kansas City? Absolutely. I think they've clinched their ticket, and I've seen recent bracketology and, and different things showing them in that 9-8 matchup, and I think that that's good. I think they can maybe increase that if they make a bit of a run, certainly with the caliber of teams that they're playing. Oklahoma is ranked, right? It's not going to hurt that if they lose. It's not a bad loss, if you will, because they're still a ranked opponent in the top 25. And then if you win that, that only helps and that could increase your seeding. And then the second game, you know, you're playing Baylor, who's a top-five opponent. So I definitely think that they can increase their seed, but I think that they locked it into the NCAA tournament. I would be shocked. I have not seen them in recent weeks be out of the tournament, and they're not even a last-four in. I think that they have secured that, and rightfully so. They've beat ranked opponents. They've won on the road and beat ranked opponents, and they've also played in a Big 12 conference. That's extremely difficult from top to bottom. Yeah, and, and when you look at, you know, the close game with Baylor, I, I think even the game in Waco was maybe a little closer than the score might have indicated. Beating some of these uh, top teams wins against Texas or whatnot, that, that has to give them some confidence that let's say they are in that 8-9 game and, and you win that game and you move on to the second round and you're playing one of those one seeds. That has to give them confidence that they can go toe-to-toe with some of those top teams, right? Absolutely, and I think what – built that confidence early on in non-con they played Tennessee and I think that game was actually closer than what the score indicated I think it ended up being maybe a 10 point give or take a differential there but I know that they played in a neutral setting in Las Vegas but I know after that game the coaching staff said we actually I know it was a loss but we knew at that point that we could compete with the best because Tennessee is a very good opponent and so after that Defeat. I think it really opened their eyes. Hey, hey, we're here and we can compete. And that carried in obviously in the Big 12 conference. But you do have to think you flip a coin right in that eight nine matchup. And then hey, what? Let's see how it goes. Let's roll it out there and see what we can do. But I definitely don't think they're going to shy away because when you're playing the likes of Baylor, at Texas, of Iowa State, of Oklahoma, Kansas State has been ranked, and you're beating those opponents. At, you know, through conference, you're not going to be shocked with. What else is out there from the number one seed category? And you're seeing in other conferences, SEC was a great example of this this past weekend. Kentucky beat the number one team in South Carolina. So it is a lot of parity out there, and it's fun to watch for sure. Just in terms of, I guess, like generally of what goes far in March. I mean, we hear it all the time with the cliche of guard play drives mm-hmm. advancement in March. Like how this team is constructed, how, how they're made up, their identity, what they do well. How do you think that does fare in March? I think it fares extremely well. This is a foundation. It's like they built 
have been built upon, and but the you know the added player of Jackson has been a game changer because they've had that guard play and they have veteran guard play too. Julie Brasso is that three point shooter when they need a you know a big shot, and then Holly Kurzgeter when she's out there as well. I mean she can light it up from anywhere, and Zakiya Franklin is definitely trending up. She has been you know the ball has been in her hand as a true freshman, and now she's in her junior campaign, and she's been playing at such a high level. If you look at her body of work in the last five games has been exceptional and so she's trending upward and then Anaya Thomas I should be talking about her as well the senior she's just such a gritty tough player I mean she plays with such energy and she can come up and she could be the leading point scorer for the Jayhawks so definitely have a lot of depth at that guard play and then they have bigs too so if they do get into foul trouble and they're up matched against because it comes up to matchups too right and how they're built and as you mentioned they don't necessarily play as well against a team with the likes of like Iowa State, but if they're playing another team that has a traditional big, if you will, and they like to throw it in and you know score from there, Kansas now has the bodies and the depth to be able to compete. In the past, as they got into foul trouble, didn't have a lot of options, and so that kind of caused some issues for them in years past, but they have the depth now at that position as well. She is Jill Dorsey Hall. Jill, thank you for the time. Before we let you go, we do something with our guests here, my co-host and producer Adam Dravetta, called One Last Thing with Adam. All right, Jill, one last thing. Should Ray Bouchard grow his mustache back? hundred percent yes, and I cannot wait for him to hear that, and I will definitely tell him that as well, and he'll have a big laugh. But oh, man, absolutely. I saw a picture of it. Uh, the, the Facebook account of the volleyball team posted pictures from all his years coaching. He looked like the bad guy from Dudley Do-Right. It was, it was phenomenal. He had a good one. I mean, yeah. if you're going to have a stash, you've got to have a good one like that. And he definitely he'll could just, rock the mustache. He'll just accuse me of being jealous because I can't grow one. <laughs> Fair enough. But I'm definitely going to try to see what I can do. See if he's rocking a stash on the sidelines next year. Uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> she is Jill Dorsey Hall. Jill, appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, that is Jill Dorsey Hall with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.